Hey folks, uh, Sujan Kapadia from Chariot here. I have uh, Rich Friedman with me. Uh, so welcome everyone. Uh, Ken Rimple can't make it this week, so I'm taking over as host. So you guys have to live with me for the next uh, 45 minutes to an hour. May not even be that long. So thanks for joining us, Rich. Good to be here. So uh, first off, I just wanna go through a few things uh, about Chariot. So we have a conference every year called ETE, which I'm sure that viewers of this uh, podcast know but we're having it online again this year, totally virtual. Um, it was a hit last year. It was our first time doing it virtual, uh, went very well. We've pretty much sold out every single year and we have an amazing lineup this year with um, Alan Kay, who's of the object-oriented computing, Xerox Park fame, Kent Beck of extreme programming, uh, Brian Getz, who's a Java language architect, uh, well-known in, in the Java Sun Oracle world. We have Jessica, Jessica Kerr, who's been um, a repeat speaker. Um, we have our own Keith Gregory, our cloud practice lead at Chariot, who's gonna be speaking as well. So we have an amazing lineup of uh, a lot of people, people that you may have heard and seen before. Uh, the early bird deadline is February 15th. It's only $70. It is a fantastic conference. The value that you're getting in terms of content for $70, um, the early bird is it's just staggering. I, I just can't believe that that's what's getting out there. I remember even 15 years ago, I was going to conferences and spending way, way more than that. And we're talking about 2021 now. So that price is just fantastic. And you can watch it live. You can get access to the content later and be the first people to get access once the videos that have been recorded are edited and published. So anyway, please, please check it out. Um, let your dev communities know, uh, let your management tech lead communities know there's content for everyone. Um, although it's developer focused, there's a lot of value for people in the tech community in general. So um, please check out 2021.phillyemergingtech.com. Um, we'll have a link posted to it later. Okay, so a few more things. Uh, Chariot, um, we have a lot of resource online. We have our blogs, our podcasts, presentations, uh, videos. So um, our blog is mainly by developers that are work, working at Chariot. Our latest one is on how to make a watch face for Garmin watches. Joe Berger, a consultant at Chariot, uh, spent some time, um, R&D time at work. Um, we give our engineers R&D time to kind of work on side projects. And he built um, a Garmin uh, watch face has actually had, I think, over 10,000 downloads now, and he's been getting like requests every day for uh, feature improvements and things like that. So um, it's had unexpected popularity. Um, so please check out this blog post if you're interested in learning kind of what it took to develop a Garmin watch face. Um, he traditionally does Android development, and he said it was a similar uh, experience to that. Uh, so um, please check that out. Um, also, our podcast, um, as you know, we have access to you know Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, um, RSS feeds. Um, this podcast page has access to all of those. Um, tech Chats Tuesdays and ones well in the past. Uh, so if you're interested in tech, interested in um, software development, uh, and you love hearing me, Ken, and others talk and ramble on and on and on, please check this out. <laughs> all right. So um, I think that's it for the Chariot content. I'm going to now get into uh, the links for this week. So first off, oh, actually, sorry, let me take that back. Um, we also have our Chariot Solutions YouTube channel. Um, as we know, everyone kind of is glued to YouTube these days, especially with the pandemic and the lockdown. So a lot of our content, including past ETE content is all on here. So, you know, please subscribe and link, big subscribe red button here. Um, 
anyway, check that out. Uh, there's a lot of stuff on here. I haven't even completed watching all the things on here. So I, I think I need to take some time off and do that at some point. There's a lot of cool stuff on there. Um, okay, so um, first off, funny, I wanna talk about uh, Google and Android joining the Rust Foundation. So for those that don't know Rust, it's sort of a low level systems programming language that has a lot of things baked in around type safety and memory safety. And as we know, a lot of security errors um, amount to issues with memory and buffer overruns and things like that. So it's things that are really hard to get right, um, very easy to mess up uh, unintentionally without even realizing it or relying on third party libraries that also mess it up and you'd never really know till something major happens or an attack occurs. So Google joining the Rust Foundation, they've already been using Rust, is, I think a big deal that they're putting their weight behind it, like the way they put weight behind Kotlin a number of years ago, and it's the de facto language for Android now. Um, I think it definitely means a lot when a company like Google gets on board with it. Um, and in fact, uh, for example, on Android, they found that half of the security vulnerabilities were related to memory safety bugs. So um, things like Rust, they're really looking at heavily to build OS system level modules and things like that. They're already using it for their Bluetooth and key store modules. Um, so check out opensource.googleblog.com. Um, a lot of cool stuff there. This one's about Google joins the Rust Foundation. Um, anyway, so I'm also gonna talk about another Android thing in terms of security. So it's interesting to pair these two. Um, it's a barcode scanner app that was written by, I think a company or developer called Lavabird. Um, anyway, apparently like 10 million people downloaded this barcode scanner. Um, which is really interesting. And it's funny, I see people in grocery stores using it like Instacart employees. So barcode scanning is like this big thing now with uh, with these kind of uh, gig, in the gig economy and people going to shop for other people and seeing that. So it's getting a lot of usage. But anyway, apparently this piece of software was totally innocuous, but in a recent update, uh, Malwarebytes found that uh, they were getting reports of people saying ads were popping up on their browser. So a recent update basically must have exposed some sort of attack vector and now ads are popping up in your browser when you weren't expecting it. So um, I think the scary thing there is 10 million downloads, just a simple update, which a lot of people just, you know, they accept updates. They're like, okay, I need to update this piece of software or just automatically update. So um, that, that whole concept of that many downloads and automatic updates, um, definitely scares me. And in this case, it's getting access to your camera too. So who, kn who knows what else it could potentially do, right? Putting ads in your browser is not harmful unless those ads are executing other scripts. But if it gets access to other native features like the camera or the microphone, um, I think all bits are off. Aren't any thoughts on that, Rich? <laughs> yeah, the interesting thing about this is, uh, you know, as soon as it was found, Google uh, pulled it from the Play Store, but that doesn't remove it from people's phones. You gotta do that yourself. Um, so I would highly recommend everybody uh, run a virus scanner on your phone. Um, uh, I've been using malware bytes and um, it's, it's a good, just a good idea. That's something I'm going to have to do because I have not done that. I'm also not like the target user for cell phones. I have very few apps on my phone. Um, but I'm definitely going to go home tonight, run it on my wife's phone <laughs> and check yeah. out what she has. Cause I don't even like opening her phone. There's literally hundreds of apps on there. I have no idea why yeah. and what they do. And that's like me too. Yeah. I've... Scary. <laughs> so, so many, I can't remember what they all are. <laughs> all right. So that's a great tip. If you run virus scanning software on your mobile phones. It's 
maybe something not a lot of people think about. You know, they think about their PC or laptop, but not about their mobile phone. So I, that's definitely something I think everyone needs to look into. Um, so I had to do something front end because Ken is not here, and it, you know, we can't we can't ignore front end. So this blog post from a some from some person that I don't know the name, and I don't want to mention the name even if it's mentioned here. Um, really just complaining about kind of the state of front-end development these days. They started when they were 14, around 2007, um, starting like just simple, you know, HTML, CSS, then kind of evolving to jQuery, and then from there going to, you know, more heavy JavaScript, TypeScript, uh, Angular, React, things like that. But com they're complaining about how complicated the whole tool chain and stack is. And this person got so fed up that they basically um, quit their job and they're now looking for a purely back-end job. They just no longer want to do front-end development. So what I find really, so it's asknomm.com blog, and um, it's I don't want to do front-end anymore. And what I find interesting is I found this through Hacker News, and uh, the actual, the first comment on Hacker News to that blog post is, oh boy, I sympathize entirely with this post, but the story is exactly the same on the back-end. That's <laughs> true. So yeah, any thoughts, Rich? <laughs> yeah, it's true. I would I would have to say it's well, depending on your stack, but uh, I think it's a little more extreme on the front end. But the back end, yeah, but not not quite as much as the front end. I mean, if you're using uh, web technologies on the back end, I mean, if you're using Node and all that stuff, then yes, it's the same on the back end because you're using the same stack, but. Uh, you know, at, at Chariot, we do a lot of a lot of Java, and while they're now releasing on a much more aggressive schedule than than they used to, it's still relatively calm and backward compatible. Yeah, and I mean, I I, I didn't get a sense from this blog post whether the person was doing back end development before they got into front end, um, but. If you've only ever done front end in the last like five years, so your you know your experience is this tool chain and stack, you may not necessarily consider it like compli complex because that's all you've ever done. So I agree mm -hmm. that it's going to be pretty similar on the back end as well. I, I think a lot of this, me as a mainly a back end developer and switching to front end at times, I find it complex. But I think that's just because I haven't done it often enough. Yeah, I mean, you know, and there are environments. I mean, whether you're doing. Angular and, and probably more Angular than some, than some of the other front end frameworks. But even even with uh, React and things like that, there are um, you know there's places that'll like websites and things that'll generate a project for you and kind of higher level stuff that keeps you from a lot of that complexity unless you start having to do some really intense or weird things. So it doesn't have to always be as crazy as it is, but. Uh, since you've done, I'm just curious, since you've done a lot of mobile and a lot of front end, which experience from a developer perspective or, or build perspective do you prefer? Uh, I can't say there's really a preference. I would say the back end stuff, server side stuff is, seems easier to get your arms around, you know, it's, it's, Pretty easy to throw up a Jenkins server or something. What your your continuous integration of or your build platform of choice and uh, kind of control it in house or put it out on on the on the cloud or whatever. Um, front end deployment. Um, I, I think most 
as far as mobile, most developers will agree, you know, it's a huge pain in the butt to deal with Android or iOS as far as submitting things to the store and managing developer keys and all that can get can get pretty intense. And again, once you know, if you've done it enough times, it, it, it's, uh, you know, you know what you're in for and, and you're used to it. But when you first get into them, it's, uh, you know, fill out a hundred forms and all kinds of policies and you don't know when your builds can actually get approved or whether it's going to get approved. So that's probably the craziest. Okay. Uh, Essentially. So you, you heard it guys there. It's a, uh, you know, you're trading one set of challenges for another. That's a common theme in engineering. <laughs> yeah, I think anytime you're doing anything of any size and trying to publish it, get, you know, get something that's more than just for your own personal or, uh, internal use, company use. Um, yeah, there's a lot involved and you, you wind up getting deep into the stack and you have to be specialized pretty quickly. And, you know, it's a real challenge to, to come up to that kind of speed across multiple platforms. So, uh, as usual, full stack is a nice idea, but it's, it's really difficult. Yeah. It's nice to be aware of, of how to do development on, on any part of the stack, but to actually continuously do development at any given moment throughout the stack is, is not easy. I find the context switching can be harder. Now, I haven't done large projects where it's JavaScript on both the front and the back, so maybe that helps a little bit. I, I can't really speak to that myself. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's doable, but you, you really wind up having to delve deeply uh, generally I mean, if you're the one uh, in charge of the uh, the builds and the deployments and all that, uh, you definitely have to know what's going on there. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, completely different topic. Uh, I'm sure many people have heard uh, Tesla bought 1.5 billion dollars in Bitcoin, which is a cryptocurrency, which caused Bitcoin to spike up 16%, and they're also saying that they're gonna begin accepting it as payment. Now, obviously, accepting it as payment doesn't mean, hey, I'm just gonna take your Bitcoin and start quoting prices in Bitcoin. Like, it's still gonna get converted to, to US dollars, whatever currency um, they're, they're accepting, depending on which region um, you're, you're, you live in and buying the car from. But it's amazing that he's putting that much money in there, which is still a small percentage of his net worth and Tesla's um, holdings, but, it's obviously anything Elon touches seems to always go nuts, um, much like anything he puts on Twitter. Um, there was a company like last, I think it was Signal or whatever. There's a company that uh, he mistakenly mentioned the wrong name or misspelled it. And the stock of that company went up like 1,500% and nothing was going on. Like the fundamentals hadn't changed, but he, Elon Musk tweeted about it and he, and he gave the wrong company name. And so its stock went up. So it just shows just shows like how much power there is in the internet and stock prices as we know about GameStop and stuff. But anyway, um, I find stuff like this interesting because if it's that volatile, it just, it, it concerns me. But in another coworker of mine gave me a, a link, I don't have it here. Um, someone on Reddit a month ago, a Tesla employee, employee was basically saying that Tesla's periodically buying up Bitcoin. And this person was involved in a project writing Python and Node.js bot, um, Tesla employee, to automatically buy Bitcoin you know, um, every day and then on larger dips buy more Bitcoin. So they have bots running buying this stuff there. Um, <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. 
um, which I'm not sure that person was probably supposed to reveal that information on Reddit a month ago, but they were basically predicting that Bitcoin was going to surge because Tesla's getting involved. So I guess the moral of the story is there is keep keep it one tab open on Reddit. <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting, uh, you know, Elon's uh, media um, approach. You know, I, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, I, I actually read that he was, they were ramping up production and he gave an interview somewhere said uh, you really shouldn't buy during a production spike because the quality's not there. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I don't know what he's doing. Seems to work for him though. Yeah. The quality is definitely getting better and better, but there definitely seems to be a rush when they want to meet certain numbers for a quarter to get stuff produced. So yeah, yeah. If, if they're, if they're, if they're trying to push something out fast near the end of a quarter, it's probably not a good time. Hopefully you don't get a vehicle that's in that batch. Um, all right. So uh, a number of us do Python and Django development at Chariot now. It's, um, it's actually grown for us the last several years. We're doing a lot more Chariot, uh, Python development than before. Um, and there is another sort of competitor to Django and things like Flask called Fast API, which is um, apparently like a very fast, lightweight server. Um, sort of similar performance to Go and Node.js, and it uses Python coroutines, asynchronous um, IO, um, constructs like async and await. Um, this person, Zubair Ahmed from toptel.com, um, has a tutorial on how to use Fast API to build a small API server. Um, I think it's interesting to go through. He's basically building a to-do app, but nowhere near as full-featured as Django. Django's been around forever. Um, so it's got a long way to go on that front, but it is interesting that uh, a number of companies like Microsoft, Netflix, Uber are dabbling in it and using it for small things here and there. So um, it, it sounds like something that's probably going to gain more popularity over time. And maybe some of the stuff will make it over at Django and others. Django is so large and used by so many people. Um, develop, it, it's kind of hard to change certain things now because it, it's a, it is a large framework. So um, interesting to see stuff like this. Maybe it'll get rolled back into, into larger uh, frameworks. In the future, I have not done much with Python coroutines or async await, so it's interesting to see that pattern spread more and more. Have you uh, have you played around any, any Python stuff? Yeah, I've done, done a little Python. I haven't looked at uh, Fast API there yet. Uh, um, so uh, something that I always like to harp on is data structures and algorithms. Um, and no, I am not a fan of regurgitating data structures and algorithms in whiteboard code interviews. I don't see much value in memorizing those for interviews and being able to write the code in C or Java up front. Um, I think it's important to appreciate algorithms and data structures and where, when to use them and being able to look them up in a book or online and kind of assess, okay, well, for my problem, this algorithm is a good fit. I think that's a lot more valuable than being able to memorize them. Um, would, you, would you agree with that, Rich? Absolutely. So this book is by University of Chicago, um, Urbana-Champaign professor who uh, wrote this book, I think starting in 1998, um, and he's now compiled it into a book and it's the first edition, June 2019. It's a free electronic version. It goes through all of the you know concepts from recursion uh, down to graph theory, down to like corner, um, path routing, shortest path algorithms, anyway, um, searches, things like that. Uh, it's all free, it's online. Um, there's so much information generally online available these days. The name of the professor, um, make sure I give credit where credit's due, Jeff Erickson of the University of Chicago. Um, check out his website. Um, he has a teaching website, and in there he has an algorithms course where this book is also um, 
link. So I, I took a quick look through the book. It looked really good. Um, there's also nice courses online, like on Coursera and um, Udemy and stuff around algorithms. So if that's something you're you're kind of um, learning engineering, but you're learning software development kind of on your own or through a boot camp or something else, and you want to spend more time on algorithms, I highly recommend doing that and getting um, getting a good understanding of, of what's available, what libraries um, have what out there, and just getting some basic stuff around like data structures, graphs, searches, recursion. Um, I would definitely check this book out. Um, oh, so I, I obviously haven't read, well, not obviously, but I haven't re read this book um, when I was first learning uh, design patterns back uh, early 90s, I guess. Yeah. Um, that book had a, had a nice section where they gave examples of each of the patterns where they were used in real widely available software so that you could not, not only just read about them and have a sort of an esoteric idea, but actually see them in use. Um, so I, I'm hoping that that book maybe ha has something like that or somebody has something companion to that. That's a good question. I don't know when I'm in my quick skim through one of the chapters, it didn't seem like it had that, but uh, I may be wrong. Maybe there's something at the end of the book. I don't know. Um, but it seemed like it was well written, good, clear examples. Um, and when, it's always nice when, when someone's writing something because they're passionate about it, they're not just teaching it because it's like checking off a box and I'm teaching it, but I'd rather be doing research and other stuff. There's a lot of value in people that are passionate about what they're teaching. So I think it comes through in that, in that professor's uh, website and book. Uh, all right. So just a few more links on my end. Uh, so MIT, this is interesting, uh, fabricating fully functional drones. So the MIT CSAIL lab, um, which is their computer science and artificial intelligence laboratory, um, basically has been using a laser cutter to start building uh, robots and things like building the base for the robot using um, silver extract to lay it down to create the circuits um, and then be able to pick components from like a shelf or some area and then put them on and solder them on. So I'm not gonna play the video here, you guys can check it out, but it basically shows um, the base of a drone being etched um, in some polymer um, using a laser cutter and using silver to basically lay down circuits, to lay down the propellers, create the circuits. And then this whole, this mo monitor, I'm sorry, motor and um, onboard controller obviously are not 3D printed. They're, they're already kind of put together and placed, but, um, the idea is that you know you can have a whole warehouse of these different components and pieces, and if a robot can figure out what to get and where to get it, like Amazon warehouses, and then follow a set of instructions to build build the kind of the housing or structure and put things together, um, it's I, I find that really cool um, and scary all at the same time. So uh, check out this C uh, Sales Laser Factory. This stuff is um, blog post by Rachel Gordon. Um, she's at MIT CSAIL. Um, so I think this whole like, you know, not having any human intervention to build things, we're going to see a lot more of that. And um, uh, you have, we have uh, Alan Kay at uh, ETE, right? Yep. Yep. So this is uh, sort of where his wheelhouse. I, I don't think this lab in particular, he was uh, the media lab, but big MIT guy there. Okay. I, I did not realize that. I, I, I think of him from his uh, Xerox Park days. I didn't realize he was involved. 
at this lab or or the media lab at MIT. Is that like he's still involved or? I'm not sure actually. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, check that out. Uh, you can create your own drones and then start flying them. I want to I want to get them like build a whole fleet of them. Uh, all right, so uh, Joe Berger, a mobile consultant at Chariot, he's talked about Flutter um, on the. Tech Chat Tuesdays before, and he has some blog content out about it on our Chariot blog as well, so please check that out. But uh, Flutter is becoming more and more of a class cross-platform framework, excuse me. Um, so beyond just iOS and Android, um, they have bindings to be able to build um, for the web and build for the desktop. Um, and Ubuntu has been using for many, many years their Ubiquity installer. Apparently, that's kind of showing its age. So they're gonna be switching to using Flutter for their installer going forward. So uh, I didn't have not used Ubuntu in a while, or, or I, should say I haven't installed Ubuntu in a while, so I haven't been playing around with Ubiquity or this new installer. But I find it uh, interesting that they're kind of picking uh, a small area like the installer to test out Flutter in. And I think we're going to see a lot more Flutter in a lot more areas on the web and the desktop going forward. The, I, I've dabbled in it last year, and the development experience is really smooth. Um, it's really easy to get started. The kind of the, the building development hot reload cycle is really fast. Um, the APIs are nice. And from a, from a UI building perspective, the ability to programmatically build UIs and it comes out with a lot of um, by default material design styling. I found that experience really easy and smooth and a, a lot easier than native mobile development in my opinion. But obviously with, with that, you get a lot of, uh, limitations that you wouldn't have with native mobile development and, and things like having to then build shims or um, specific plugins to go back to like Android native or iOS native. But anyway, if you're interested in Flutter on the desktop, check out this blog post. Um, it doesn't get too much detail about Flutter itself. Um, so I think you'd have to do some research on your own. But uh, I don't know, have you played around with Flutter at all? Uh, no, I haven't. Actually, I'm curious, how was uh, the deployment? Was that as smooth as development? Uh, deployment like to an app store? Well, uh, even just getting it uh, built for the various operating systems. Um, so when I was playing around with it, Joe Berger will be able to answer that better. I only did it for Android. Um, and I hadn't, it was just kind of uh, tutorial stuff I was going through. So I hadn't done it for like different devices and form factors and spent all the time getting all the different assets and things like that together for the different form factors. And I only did it for that one. Um, Android, like my own phone, so I can't really speak to that how it, how the experience is across other Android um, devices and iOS. Um, I would I would expect that it's not any harder than the other tools out there. Uh, I just wanted to mention I'm, I'm probably the last person on the planet to try this, but uh, over the last couple of weeks, in my spare time, I've been building an Electron app, um, which actually worked out fairly well. Uh, so for those folks who like JavaScript and want to do everything in uh, in Java, JavaScript um, or TypeScript, frankly, um, you know, if if you're not trying, if you're not worried about the bundled size, trying to deploy it everywhere and run it on ridiculously small environments, uh, it, you know, if you can handle the uh, the size of the thing and the memory requirements of it. Um, which in my case, it's it's fine. It's for my own uh, for my own enjoyment. I am actually running the uh, the resulting uh, application on a Raspberry Pi, so 
uh, Pi Four with you know eight gig of memory. So, but it, but that's still doable. But uh, you know, I actually have uh, again maybe not the best idea in the world, but I I, I have a um, Angular app embedded in Electron, small Angular app, and uh, you know it, it just kind of works. Um, the biggest thing I found there, uh, the reason to bring that up is, is theoretically cross-platform, but as soon as I tried to actually deploy it cross-platform, I found that not all of the builds work on all of the architectures. So uh, on the Mac, I could build for the Mac and for Windows, and uh, I think I was able to build Linux on the Mac too. Um, but when I went to build the for the Raspberry Pi for the for the ARM process Linux for the ARM processor, uh, that wouldn't work on the Mac. And uh, after you Google and Stack Over search Stack Overflow for for an hour, you find out that uh, the deployment the, the deployer was written really with the uh, x eighty eighty six architecture in mind, and nobody ever made it work on other platforms. Um, so, and I, before I really realized that that was the problem, I tried building for the Pi on the Pi, and that didn't work either. Uh, and ultimately, I had to go to uh, Linux, having a Ubuntu machine. Uh, and on uh, on Linux x86, you can build for the Pi, and then that works. So if you want to build for everybody, you, you need two or three different build environments to actually get everything built. But yeah. uh, well, once you figure that out, it, it's uh, it's actually not a bad environment. Yeah, I, I built an Electron app for Windows before for um, a shop that were all Windows machines. Uh, and it was a pretty easy experience. It was a simple app. I mean, it, it was the fastest or path of least resistance with all the caveats you mentioned about bundle size and, and memory usage. But it was still the quickest thing for me to develop and get a desktop app running on Windows that looked reasonably okay um, and be able to, like, you know, write, read and write to disk and use certain command line utilities that I could mm -hmm. execute as processes from the Electron app. So it allowed me to kind of do platform specific stuff, but do it through JavaScript. Um, and so I, I found that experience not too bad for small, yeah. for small things. Right. In my case, I needed to, I needed raw sockets. I needed to consume an API that was not an HTTP API. It's sort of a, an older uh, telnet like interface. Um, right, yeah. you just write out a commando socket and get get a result back over the yeah. raw socket. So, that, also, which is really the only thing I need Electron for, but okay. uh, but it made it work. So, yeah. I, I I like the aspect of just having the Chrome Dev Tools essentially and debugging in the thing and being able to step through that. Yeah, I haven't actually tried debugging like that. But, okay. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, Rich has been dabbling with. TensorFlow Lite, machine learning, and Arduino. So um, I'm going to hand it over to him, and he's going to talk about his experience with that. All right. Well, we we had a customer, shall remain nameless, um, who uh, asked us to make a TensorFlow uh, demo application work on a new Arduino board. Uh, and I will mention the name of the board. It's an it's an interesting one. It's the it's called the Portenta H7. And uh, it's a dual processor board, um, and it runs the uh, the embed operating system, and has the Arduino library on top of that. So you can program it with your 
Arduino API or, or other Arduino environment of choice. And uh, it's a pretty beefy little board. It's a little on the expensive side. It runs about $100. I think it's $99 in the, in the store. And then it, uh, it has a, a companion board um, that they call the, uh, the vision board. And it, it snaps on to the, uh, to the main board. And it has uh, notably the camera and a bunch of other sensors on it. So, and that's, uh, I think, another $50. So it's about $150 to get the full experience there, which is quite a bit more than some other Arduino boards, but, uh, but it's a lot beefier. Do you have a link to the uh, board? Uh, yeah, it should be. Uh, I, I do have a link. Or if you want to share your screen. Uh, wait a minute, let me find it. It's store.arduino.cc slash USA slash Portenta dash H7. But if you just search Portenta, it's P-O-R-T-E-N-T-A, okay. uh, you'll find it. Um, and so they have, uh, it, one of the notable things about the board is that it has support for TensorFlow Lite, uh, and that's built on top of that, the same embed OS that, uh, underlies the Arduino library on that board. And, um, TensorFlow, for those of you who, who don't know about it, TensorFlow is, uh, a free and open source uh, machine learning library that Google developed and uh, released in 2015. Uh, it's an inferencing engine. So it's the kind of thing where you uh, you train it with a bunch of examples of something. And so it's great at categor categorization, among other things, if you want to feed it a bunch of images, which is what the project we did was um, a person detector. And the idea is you, you feed it frame video frames um, and it figures out whether there's a person in the image or not. Uh, and this uh, person detection example is a, a standard example that you, if you uh, download TensorFlow Lite, uh, it's one of the bundled examples. Uh, but it wasn't really, uh, it wasn't running on this particular board, so we had to had to modify it. And all, mo most of the work uh, we did actually had very little to do with TensorFlow itself and more about um, making it work with the, the particular camera that was on this on the uh, on the vision board for this camera for this board um, but uh, we wound up having to muck about in the uh, in in the camera drivers for uh, for the board and write some additional uh, Arduino code to make it work our major thing once we got actually got the camera working uh, was that the TensorFlow light model uh, wants a really small image and a 96 by 96 pixel image to analyze. And um, unlike apparently in some other environments, we weren't able to ask the camera for a 96 by 96 image. We had to get a much larger image and crop it and scale it to get a 96 by 96 image. So that, that, was, uh, that was fun. If you uh, want to play with that example, a TensorFlow Lite and uh, and that example, um, the uh, Arduino Nano 33. I'm not sure of the exact price on that, but it's a lot cheaper. And there's a, an inexpensive camera for that board. Uh, 
I think it's the uh, the Nano 33 BLE board. Yep. Yeah, that's it, the Sense, the BLE Sense. Yeah. And I don't remember whether that board comes with a camera. If not, it's relatively inexpensive to add one. I think it comes with the camera. I don't remember. Um, and it, uh, you know, amazingly, it works once we got uh, we got images to it. And oh, I highly highly recommend that book. It's a good, good, very good introduction to Tiny ML. Yeah, I started going through it a month or two ago. The first couple chapters. We are the first chapter um, goes through a regression example. It's not usually like what you would think of right away with with using yeah. it. So it was an interesting example to start with, but it's a great book. Um, highly recommend checking that out. Um, even if you don't have experience with machine learning or TensorFlow, it, it doesn't assume you have knowledge about that. Right. Um, so don't be scared by it if you haven't touched any of these things before. So the interesting thing is there, there's really, well, at least three versions of TensorFlow that I know of. So there's the full-blown TensorFlow, and that's where you would actually develop uh, a model like the uh, person detector, uh, and then train it with lots and lots of samples. And then there's uh, TensorFlow Lite, which is uh, really just the, the runtime aspect of it. So TensorFlow Lite doesn't include, uh, as far as I know, building a model or training it. Um, what you do is you develop your model in TensorFlow, and then there's a uh, TensorFlow light converter that you run it through, and it outputs uh, a highly optimized version of the model. And then uh, on something like, say, the Raspberry Pi, you can run TensorFlow light, and it will uh, run it through the TensorFlow light interpreter and do, do the, whatever the analysis is that your, your model does. And then there's uh, a more highly optimized, even smaller version called TensorFlow Lite for microcontrollers. Uh, and that's what we were using on this uh, Arduino board. Awesome. So it's uh, com it, coming to an Arduino near you. It certainly doesn't work on all of the Arduinos, uh, but uh, there's a handful of them that it does work on. How is the performance on the Portenta when you ran the uh, the inferencing. I guess that, that's hard to know because I didn't run it anywhere else. Okay. Um, it was taking, I think, about four or five seconds for it to analyze a frame. I'm guessing that's a lot slower than if you did it on a, on a, you know, a laptop. Mm -hmm. So you know, we couldn't, for instance, um, analyze video in real time. We were just uh, grabbing an image from the. We had the camera in video mode, but we're grabbing frames, analyze a frame, and then wait till that's finished, analyzing to grab the next frame. And I think we had a, a six or seven second total turnaround time. Oh, which is actually not, I mean, depending on the use case, that's actually not bad at all if you don't need right. an instant answer. Right. What I found was difficult when we were uh, developing it was uh, initially I didn't even have anything to hold the board. So I was holding it in my hand, like holding it in front of my face. And trying to aim the camera when you have a seven-second delay is almost impossible. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, all right, that's that's really cool. So, um, what were your thoughts on like TensorFlow Lite? And I guess were you developing it? Was this all in C? 
Yeah, well, combination of uh, C and C++ at the the low level on the board, and then uh, you know Arduino's C variant, which is kind of a lightweight C in the actual what what they call a sketch, which is the the main program that's running that okay. Arduino. But the the drivers was uh, C and C++. Okay, so it sounds like was it a big lift converting it to running it on the Arduino and, and then was more work actually getting the drivers to work? Yeah, it was most, mo most of what we had to do was getting the drivers to work. And then like I say, adapting the, uh, the graphics needs, you know, we, we get a, a much larger image from the camera and, uh, the drivers and because the board is new, the drivers are in a pretty raw state. So there was kind of, I think two resolutions available, uh, both of which were much larger than what we needed. So it was a matter of, cropping and scaling uh, the image once we actually got the drivers working. Okay. That sounds uh, that sounds really cool. I mean, I, that's kind of work that we don't do too often at Cheria on most projects. So I think yeah. it's really neat that we got to do something very different in that space. So from, from the TensorFlow point of view, uh, you know, we were a user. Uh, we downloaded the example that somebody else uh, created and trained. Sure. Uh, and it just, it just works. Okay. Awesome. Um, so yeah, I, I, if, you, if anyone's interested in machine learning, interested in embedded, once the, you know the ability to run this stuff on cheap hardware um, that's readily available. Sometimes it's hard to actually get these things; um, they go out of stock fast. Um, but pretty much anyone can get into machine learning these days and dabble with it um, with stuff like embedded and IoT. And I think another interesting example that a lot of people are familiar with because they all have Google Homes or. Um, Siri or Google Assistant or Amazon Alexa's um, that tiny ML book later on in the book has an example on wake word recognition, which is essentially, yeah. you know, a, a, a model, a, a small embedded model specifically trained for that wake word, not for any sort of natural language detection, because that would be a much larger model, um, but to detect that specific wake word. So it actually teaches you how to do that and run that on the Nano 33 BLE. So if you're interested in it from that angle or kind of want to hack at your own home assistant type stuff and connect it to smart IoT stuff, um, you can totally do that. Um, and if I remember that example, that only has yes and no, right? I think so. So I one of the things I want to try is to see if we can uh, train it on a few, a handful of more words. Right. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what the size of the model ends up being what yeah. once com once compressed oh yeah, oh yeah speaking of that um does the I, I does the entire model live in ram so what 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 is the limitations in terms of the model size when you actually convert and deploy it to a you know whatever in this case a portenta but yeah i'm not sure oh i you know i guess it depends on the board that you have how much memory you have okay uh, i don't know what the relative size is but uh yeah they're doing things like uh from what I read, I, I think the full TensorFlow uses, uh, I guess at least on the 64-bit platform, it's using 64-bit uh, floats and the TensorFlow Lite, the, the converter, uh, converts yeah. that down to, I think, 16-bit ints or something like yeah. that. So yeah. they're doing everything they can to reduce the, the memory right. size of it. All right, cool. So um, I think the last thing I wanted to mention before we... Uh, sign off, uh, let me get the link here, is a, uh, hold on one second. Uh, there's a 10 terapixel 
image of the night sky that contains one billion galaxies. And there's actually a website where you can actually pan, zoom in, and look at this entire 10 terapixel image and zoom in all the way down to like individual galaxies. Um, sorry, give me one second here. I'm a little bit lost. All right. Uh, let me copy this over here. So if you guys can see this, this is allows you to kind of filter things out by different types of stars, uh, star clusters, constellations. Um, you can zoom in and it will show you to a breathtaking level of detail um, what's been captured. Now, I don't know um, which part of the visible universe from, from Earth um, this is capturing. It may be a lot of it. Um, anyway. This was a fun time. So I, I think put, put things in perspective. Uh, <laughs> we're tiny in the grand scheme of things. And I'm probably going to spend some time tonight looking for evidence of a simulation or a glitch or the number 42 in this. Um, be interesting all the, so people are, people on Hacker News were asking about this and uh, like supercomputers and GPU and all, all the processing power it takes is it's highly non-trivial to build these images and scan the image and say something like, oh, there's 1 billion galaxies there. There's a lot of distributed computing, a lot of, lot of um, work, machine learning, or you know, just hand tuning, hand tweaking algorithms to figure out what's a galaxy, what's not a galaxy, um, and be able to come up with that 1 billion number. So uh, hope you guys enjoyed this. Um, Ken Rimple and I will be back next week. So um, sorry, Ken, you couldn't be here. Thanks, Rich, for joining and being a partner. It, it wouldn't have been as fun with me talking to myself. Um, so appreciate that, everyone. Uh, this is Sujan Kapadia. Uh, thanks for listening. And please check out the links afterwards um, and hit us up with any questions or anything. And please check out uh, Philly ET. The early bird ends on the 15th of uh, this month. Um, it's only $70 and you're getting access to absolutely amazing content and probably one of the best uh, speaker lineups we've ever had. So uh, thank you. And thank you, Rich. Yep. We'll see you there. Take care. <laughs>